0: As Arnold mentioned, my name is Jamie Newman, and uh, I'm here also with my wife, Christina. You can't see her, but she's back there, um, with our uh, two little girls, Aria and Ella, and then we've got our two older boys, Jacob and Isaac, here as well. And we're really happy to come this week because there's a potluck. So um, that was a, a nice surprise, um, but it is, it is good to be back, so thank you so much for having us. We're going to jump right in because there's a lot to cover. Uh, We're talking about the wrath of God today, so um, get ready. Uh, I've titled the sermon today, Who Can Stand? Who Can Stand? This actually comes from uh, verse 6 of Nahum chapter 1, which says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before his indignation? There's a good word, indignation. What does that mean? Well, it's a righteous and just anger in response to being insulted. That's what indignation is. Who can stand before his indignation? So today what we're doing is we're looking at the goodness, we're looking at the the holiness, the glory, the grandeur, we're looking at the size of our God, we're looking at the greatness, the all-satisfying, the awe-inspiring, the perfection of God, and we're considering what happens when his name and his splendor when his ways are twisted and when they're perverted and when they're trampled over and disregarded. We're talking about what happens when we say to our God, our creator, no thank you. I'll give my affection and I'll give my worship to something else or someone else, probably myself. Like what happens? And what happens when something God loves so much, and I'm talking about his church, I'm talking about his people, his bride, What happens when his church and his people are trampled on? When God is insulted, when he is indignant, when he is righteously and justly angry, who can stand? Who can stand? Of course, the answer is no one. No one can stand. Uh, Not you, not me. Nobody can stand before his indignation. So welcome to church. I hope you wanted to pick me up. Um, you're actually going to get a pick-me-up. This is actually really good for us to be looking at this passage that we're going to dive into right after Easter because what we get to do today is we get to emphasize and renew our minds once more to clearly see the goodness of God and understand, better understand the indescribable gift that we celebrated last weekend. So it's actually really good timing. I mean, when you start to unpack the character of God, like we're gonna do today, and you see not only the justification for his wrath, but you also see the beauty of what's available to us in Christ Jesus. I mean, the message is just so clear today. It's so clear. Here's here's the message. God's goodness is really comforting. So if you do need a pick-me-up today, you're actually gonna see that. Take comfort in God's goodness. And if you're here and maybe you're not a believer, um, maybe you haven't yet acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. might even be sitting here and being like, sin, wrath, why do they keep talking about this? Why is sin such a big deal? Well, if that's you, buckle up, because that's actually the wrong question. The right question is, why is the cross such a big deal? Like, after preparing this message, I'm like, let's just do Easter every week. Like, I guess we do celebrate Easter kind of every week. So, uh, but still, like, I want to do it every week. I want to be reminded and emphasized who Jesus Christ is. And so we're going to do that today, but let's uh, jump in. And before we do, we're going to ask our great God of comfort to help us because anytime you talk about the character of God, um, you, like, don't screw it up. So uh, let's ask God to, uh, to help us. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you are holy, and I am not. Um, and so I just ask that you would, uh, that your word would go forth, that you'd remove any distraction right now, that I wouldn't be a distraction Um, And then I would just clearly articulate by the Holy Spirit so that people could understand, uh, God, you move in this place uh, and bring glory to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible with you, um, turn to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. You probably don't know where that is. I'm just kidding. Uh, Hopefully, it is one of the minor prophets. We're looking at Nahum chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one attached to the pew in front of you. If you uh, don't own a Bible, just keep that one. It's a gift to you. We want to make sure that you have the Word of God with you. And this is especially important today. It's important every Sunday. I shouldn't say that. But it is especially important today. I want to make sure that you're following along with us. Um, Hold me accountable, but also just see God's Word before your eyes. So, Nahum chapter 1, let's go. Starting in verse 1, it says, An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And so we're told right away that this is an oracle. It's a prophecy. It's a direct word from God. And this direct word from God has been revealed to Nahum, who is of Elkosh. And it's been revealed through a a vision. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about who Nahum is. uh, But good news, that doesn't matter. This book isn't about Nahum. This book is about Nineveh. Now, put up your hand if you have heard of Nineveh before. There's a lot of hands that went up. Now, keep your hand up if the reason that you have heard of Nineveh is because of the book of Nahum. And a whole bunch of hands went down. Why? Because we think of Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah, nearly everyone inside the church and outside of the church knows the historical account. And I said that right, the historical account of Jonah, which is made famous for the great fish that swallowed Jonah. And, and of course, we get some great like, children's books and Sunday school crafts and lots of books on this. Uh, my six-year-old brought home a uh, craft the other day for, from Jonah a couple weeks ago. It was this sheet of paper with a fish with its mouth open, and it had this like envelope behind it so you could take paper Jonah and put him in and pull him out of the, uh, the fish's mouth. So that was kind of cool. Um, so we all know Jonah, and because we all know Jonah, most of us know Nineveh, because it was that, that wicked city, Nineveh, that the story of Jonah centers around. And so God tells Jonah, hey, go to Nineveh and call out against it. And Jonah says, no, I'd rather not, because if I go and call out against that city, they might repent, and you might show them mercy. Jonah didn't want them to be shown mercy. And so he runs the opposite direction. And of course, like, when God calls, you can't run uh, but he tries. He even goes to a point where he gets himself thrown off of a ship in the middle of this epic storm, which is a death wish for sure. But that's when the fish comes in. Like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's believable because it's true. Um, but the thing is, Jonah hated Nineveh that much. And he was right, actually. Nineveh did repent, if you remember the story of Jonah. God did hold back that anger, and he did spare them. And the book then ends uncomfortably with Jonah wrestling in anger toward God and not understanding God's love, not understanding his will. And about 100 years later, we get this book of Nahum, which is about that same city. And it's just is not as popular of a book. If you leaf through it, um, you'll just find you, you can't really make kids' crafts out of this. I mean, there's, there's a line, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. All right, kids, come, grab a, come draw a picture. Go show mommy dead bodies. Uh, yeah, we, just, we, don't, we don't have the same flavor as Jonah when we're looking at the book of Nahum. And so as we look at, at the book of Nahum, what you need to know is this is a clearly and specifically about God's destructive judgment against the city of Nineveh, which was fulfilled about 40, 50 years ago. After the prophecy was written, it's a book with strong language and graphic imagery. It's a book with taunting insults. And it's a book that causes us to consider character traits of God that just don't sit very well in our culture today as we see God's wrath and his jealousy and his vengeance. But it's so comforting. It's so comforting. You see, at the time Nahum was written, not only had Nineveh returned to their wicked ways, but they were now stronger than ever and had actually elevated their game. If you read through 2 Kings 17 and 18, uh, you'll see that the northern kingdom of Israel, and at this time, Israel was split into two. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and it has been split in half. But at this time, the northern kingdom of Israel had been in Assyrian captivity. Well, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, And we also know at this time that the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, at one time had gone and attacked Judah and basically embarrassed them and took all their gold and silver. And it was even to a point where Sennacherib uh, stripped off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord. This was an embarrassment to Judah. Um, Now, just so you know, the story of Sennacherib does not end well. His kids kill him. Um, But the point is, this is a time... When the book of Nahum is written, this is a time when God's people had been embarrassed. Like, not just oppressed, but embarrassed. And if you read through, again, 2 Kings, you'll see the basic message from Assyria is, where's your God? Like, really? Your God is going to stop us? Like, the arrogance. Nineveh. And so just, just think about this. Nineveh, the Assyrian city that God had spared, the city that God could have destroyed, the city that God shows his love and his mercy and his grace to, that city was embarrassing God. What an insult. And God could have wiped them out and prevented all of this. And so you can imagine that the people of Nineveh, or, or not Nineveh, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, might have been saying, is God really good like what's going on here? Does does Nineveh just like get away with this? Like does God care? Is He not just? Maybe God's too soft and just He can't bring Himself to actually fulfill judgment, or maybe He's not powerful enough. Maybe everything that we've been told about our God is not true. And God speaks through this book. We're going to look at it, it today, the first eight verses, and He says, "Enough. I am the Lord." I am the one who defines justice. I am the one who sets the standard. I am your holy and awesome God. You will worship me. All worship and affection is to be given to me. And when you see who I really am, you're not only gonna fall down and worship before me, but you're gonna trust me to deal with Nineveh. So let me remind you exactly who it is that you serve and exactly who Nineveh is messing with. And this brings us to our first point. Who can stand? No one. No one can stand before this God. His glory demands our worship. His glory demands our worship. Look down at verse 2. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. We'll stop there. Right off the bat, we see two important, well, we see a few important character traits of the Lord, uh, but we see his jealousy and his vengeance. Um, We'll start with jealousy. Um, We're not to be jealous. We are are not. That is sinful to be jealous. Romans 13 says it's a sin. Uh, Galatians 5.20 says it's a sin. That's really because when we consider uh, jealousy, it's really a, a sinful envy. It's when we look at something that's not rightfully ours, and we get angry and we want it. We should not want things that are not given to us. That is envy, that is jealousy, and that is a sinful jealousy. But our God is a jealous God. You can turn back with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Maybe I shouldn't turn here. Slow us down. Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to, this is the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but we're going to look at the uh, opening, a few verses, starting in verse 3. It says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, here it is, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And later in Exodus, uh, you don't have to turn there, Exodus thirty-four fourteen, we read that not only is the Lord jealous, it's his name. Like, talk about a bold statement. Listen to this. This is Exodus thirty-four fourteen. It says this, You shall worship no other god, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Like, to to think that you would wrap up the character of God and say jealousy. That's what he does. And he's good to be jealous. He's, He's good to be jealous. And that's because all glory and all praise and all worship actually rightfully belong to him. They are his possession and this isn't just because he's powerful enough to command he could just force us to worship him but the reason that he rightfully owns and possesses glory and praise and worship is because there's nothing more glorious nothing more praiseworthy and anything else that you can think of that might even be worth thinking about as glorious and praiseworthy is his colossians 1:16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So look around. Go out at night, look at the stars, they're his. Look at the sun, it's his. Look at the mountains, they're his. And, and it doesn't stop there. I could go on and probably spend the next 40 minutes just pointing everything out. But, but even think about this. Every single thing God commands us to do, when he says do this and don't do this, All of it is for his glory and our good. And there's promises through that. There's promises that when we walk in his ways, we get peace and joy and hope and redemption. Like there's nothing good apart from him. And so he is the rightful owner of all glory, all praise and all worship. And when things that are rightfully his are not given to him, he is rightfully and justly jealous And you know what else belongs to him? Well, everything. But you know what else is in his possession? Israel, his people. Exodus 19.5, if if you're still in Exodus, you can flip back and look at it. But Exodus 19.5 says this, Now therefore, if you, he's talking to Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." I I love that because obviously all the earth is mine, everything is in his possession, but within his possession, he still chooses what he's going to treasure. How comforting it would have been then at that time for God's people to read this opening sentence about the Lord's jealousy and just be reminded that jealousy was a signal that they were his people that despite their obedience, they were still God's treasured possession because he is relationally and he is possessively jealous. And the other thing to consider here is Nineveh had not only violated God's name by not giving him the glory and honor due his name and not walking in obedience. Nineveh should have recognized God as the one true God. But Nineveh's violated God's bride, his people, And so he is jealous, and he is avenging, and he is wrathful. But notice in uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, notice a couple things. Notice the Lord's patience, and notice the Lord's omnipotence. That's his all-powerfulness, and notice his justice. This is the first half of uh, verse 3. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. What does this tell us? This tells us that the Lord, even in that anger and wrath and jealousy and vengeance, he is not reckless. He is not quick-tempered. He is not cruel. He is slow to anger, and he is not slow to anger because he is weak or limited or soft, He is great in power, it says us. It says here. I I love how John MacArthur lays it out. I I wrote this this down. It's a really good quote. John MacArthur preaching on this passage says, what God does not do is not because he cannot. It is because he is long-suffering. He is not willing that any should perish. God stays or holds back his anger in mercy, and don't you ever confuse mercy with impotence. God is not impotent. He is all-powerful, and he is just. And when a crime has been committed, there is punishment fitting that crime always. And the guilty will not be cleared by any means because he is a God of perfect justice. And so God's people here, two things are happening. They're being exhorted and they're being comforted by God's goodness in this opening statement. He's exhorting his people to worship him. He's reminding them that he's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all worship. Like, why are they in this mess to begin with? If they'd properly obeyed and honored the Lord, this wouldn't have happened. So there's, a, there's an exhortation there. But there's also comfort. God's comforting them, and he's saying, you're mine. You're mine. And I'm not going to let Nineveh get away with their disregard for what's mine. Justice will be served. And church, this is the exact same message for us today. The two things, the exhortation and the comfort. His glory demands our worship today. we, We saw it already in Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. What's that mean? It means nothing gets our affection and our worship and our obedience above Christ. Nothing above the Lord our God. And take comfort, because the tyrants, the oppressors, and the biggest enemy of them all, Satan, will get what's coming. Why? Because no one messes with God's name and no one messes with God's people. And think about this. This is talking about you, First Peter and, and me. First uh, Peter 2, 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you, believer, me, the church, we are his. And we see from Nahum that our God is jealous for his possessions, and anyone who comes against his name or his people will fall under the just, all-powerful wrath of the living God, and any delay in that wrath coming is his mercy. So praise God for that. Let's move on to our next point. His glory demands our worship. We see that in the opening. And his power crushes our pride his power crushes our pride we'll pick it back up halfway through verse three his way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet he rebukes the sea and makes it dry he dries up all the rivers Bashan and Carmel wither the bloom of Lebanon withers The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Our God is awesome, is he not? You know, one of the major categories of sin that we see addressed all throughout Scripture, probably because you could root every sin back to this, is pride. And so I thought I'd throw up a definition Um, So if we can get a definition up on on that board. Not that I think anybody needs a reminder, but like we need a reminder. So this is what pride is. This is just from dictionary.com. I thought it might be helpful. It is a high or inordinate, that means like inappropriate or above and beyond. It's a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. And so I I think we just need, need to see why this is actually sinful. It should be obvious. But let, let me read it almost a, a different way. Pride is when you don't give credit or glory to God. So look at this and think my dignity, my importance, my merit, my superiority. Me, me, me. That's pride. That's sinful. The response should be not me, Christ. All I have. All I am, anything I do that is any sort of good or reflection of his glory is just that, a reflection of his glory because of Jesus Christ. And so we see pride prodded at throughout this whole book of Nahum. You can read it for yourself. It's just four chapters this afternoon. Uh, But what happens throughout the book is God just taunts and pokes at Nineveh's pride. And he basically says, all right, you think you're strong? You think you're mighty? Grab everything you've got. Put all your defenses up. Grab all the strength that you can, and I will cut you down. Every source of your pride is going to be taken from you. And it's kind of beautiful to to read through it. It's kind of like, yeah, God, go get Nineveh. And right here, as we look at chapter one, we're going to see pride addressed specifically to Judah, to us, also to Nineveh as well, in three different ways. Uh, So his power crushes our pride because, first of all, our God is awesome. Verse 3, or halfway through verse 3. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Like, just imagine this for a moment. One of the nice things about living in Alberta, we get these, like, really big skies. And so when a storm comes in, usually we can see it for kilometers away, and it, like, slowly comes in. It's almost beautiful how it takes over a sunny day and then, like, brings devastating hail and ruins our plants. I don't know if you guys get the same hail we do in Airdrie, but it's not fun. Um, but it's, it's, it's beautiful, actually, when, when you think about it. And God says, those clouds are the dust of my feet. Do you know how big storm clouds are? I actually looked it up, um, and I have no idea how they calculate this, uh, and I have no idea what it means, but I, I found that a storm cloud, which I don't know what that means either, but a storm cloud is about 10 kilometers tall and 10 kilometers across and filled with Two million tons of water. I can't even comprehend that. And that's one storm cloud. And God says, that is the dust of my feet. And then add in the destructive reality of hurricanes, tsunamis, 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 even think about a random snowfall. Did you guys get hit with snow randomly? Yeah, and like what else in all creation, what else literally stops us interrupts us where we're at and reminds us that you're just not in control. Snowstorms do that. Well, any sort of storm uh, does that. And the other thing to keep in the back of your mind here that the original audience would have had in the back of their mind is all oh right, the flood. Those storm clouds that covered the entire earth and God says that's the dust of my feet. Our God is awesome. You are not. That's the message. You are not. And Nineveh, your puny, weak, pathetic attempt at strength is nothing. It's nothing. The gods you worship are nothing. And Israel, Judah, listen up. Your God is an awesome terror, so stand in awe as I right the wrongs and destroy Nineveh. His power crushes Our pride because our God is awesome and his power crushes our pride because our God is provider. He provides. And what I mean by that is you are completely dependent on him. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. This verse, if you ever get a chance to study it, is so deep. And we just don't have time to go into it. Uh, But I will point out the obvious. You can't help when you're reading this, and the original audience wouldn't have been able to either, to think of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Like there's a display of power. You've got a sea and God pulls back the water and they cross and they escape Egypt on dry ground. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. That's our God. And where was God taking his people out of slavery? He was taking them into the promised land. How did they get into the promised land? Well, on dry ground, crossing the Jordan River. Joshua 4, verses 23 to 24, it says this, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Wow, like what power! God takes his people from slavery in Egypt, does miraculous wonders to provide for them. They are completely dependent. No one was gonna be like, I'm just gonna cross this sea or this river. Wasn't happening. God provided, and he provided to a point where taking them to a promised land that was filled with, or described as flowing with milk and honey, a fertile ground, a place of plenty. But what's interesting is we read here, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, and those are places in the promised land, some of the most lush, uh, some of the be- wellest watered, best watered, nicest watered, well watered, one well watered places in the promised land. And God says, I wither them. What's he saying? Well, what's he, what name's pointing out here is that God has control over absolutely everything. He brought Israel into the promised land. He brought them to a place of plenty, and he can take it away. He can make it wither. And he's also saying to Nineveh, hey, you can come take over the promised land. I know that you want it because it's a really nice place, but just remember, if I let you come, and that's a big if, if I let you come, I can destroy you and ruin you and cut you off here. I can take away your entire food source. You are dependent on me. Everything you have is from me, and I can take everything that you have away. I can dry up the, wi- the rivers, and I can wither even the most fruitful and fertile land. God's power crushes our pride because our God is awesome, because our God is the provider. We are dependent on him, and he crushes our pride because our God is our only hope. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. Like, think about that. I mean, we've got some mountains pretty close. Like, think about the stability and the size of these mountains, and they quake before our God. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. What are we seeing here? We're seeing mountains, hills, earth. What is this? This is the ground beneath their feet. Couldn't help but think in that one of the songs, like, Christ is our foundation. Uh, keep that in the back of your mind. It just adds some, some depth to, to what we're looking at here. I thought there was great, great lyrics in that song. But Nahum is telling the reader here, your literal foundation is only sustainable as long as God says so. Like his power crushes our pride when we realize that even the earth we stand on is his. And so God shakes the earth in his presence. And that's another symbol of our God's power compared to the so called power Nineveh had. Like Nineveh's like, we're so strong and mighty. And God's like, I could literally go like this and you're done. What power? Now, there's something that we just can't miss, though, as we read through this. So if, if you take a little bit of a scan through Nahum, you'll notice that this is poetry. And it's filled with a lot of figurative language. And so one of the temptations that we can have is to say this is a figurative or metaphorical book. And there are figurative languages. There are metaphors within the book to help us understand. But let's not miss something. These word pictures aren't exaggerations. They're, they're not exaggerations, and so I just want to walk through a couple of things to help us realize this. For starters, I already referenced it. The flood, listen to this. This is from Genesis 7, 11. 7, 11. Genesis 7, chap- chapter 7, verse 11. The fountains of the great deep burst forth. I mean, I just imagined water bursting forth out of the earth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And maybe you remember reading in the book of Numbers, Korah's Rebellion, When Korah rebels against Moses and Aaron, listen to this. This is from Numbers chapter 16, um, starting in verse 31. It says this. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods, so that all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, And the earth closed over them, and they perished in the midst of the assembly. That's scary. Like, I love God, and that scares me. And maybe you read this on Good Friday. Here's here's another example. This is from uh, Matthew 27. This is the death of Jesus. Uh, Verse 50 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Check out verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. What power. And let's, let's continue into Acts. Acts chapter 4. We won't read these for the sake of time. The early church prays for boldness, and the place where they're gathered in, the Holy Spirit shows up, and the building shakes. And later in Acts chapter 16, you might remember this, Paul and Silas, they were praying in prison and singing hymns, and the foundation of the prison shook, and the doors opened, and their bonds, their shackles, their chains ripped apart, and they were freed. And then think probably the most sobering image that we get actually comes from Revelation. This is looking forward in the future where God shakes the earth in his judgment. So listen to this from Revelation 6. You can turn there, because we're going to spend a little bit of time in Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6. While you're turning there, I need some water. I left my water bottle down here. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 12. It says... When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree shakes its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Check this out every mountain and island was removed from its place. What hope could we possibly have against this God? His power completely crushes our pride because a proper view of our God shows us that he is awesome in power, shows us that we are completely dependent on him, and shows us that the only possible thing that could ever give us hope when that God shows up is God himself. Like, there's literally no other place to turn when you realize the ground beneath your feet could fall away at the word of the Lord by the one who considers the storm clouds to be the dust of his feet. So yes, his glory demands my worship, I get it. And his power crushes my pride. And we're now gonna see that, praise God, I told you, this is a book of comfort. Praise God. His mercy covers our sin. His mercy covers our sin. Um, So keep your finger in Revelation 11, but we're going to look back at Nahum chapter 1. Uh, Did I say Revelation 11? Keep your finger in Revelation 6, and we're going to turn back to Nahum chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 6, and we're going to see our key question for today. Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. Listen close. Who can stand... Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Who can stand before our godly? We just saw it. We're hopeless unless God does something. So the course, the, the answer is no one can and no one will, and we know no one will. Um, This is where I want you to have your finger. We're going to go back to Revelation 6 for a second. Because if you ever wondered, well, like, but really? Like, what might happen when God shows up? Maybe someone will try and stand. And we actually get a cool picture of this. I say cool because I love God, and I know this doesn't apply to me. Um, But this is is not cool for them. Uh, Verse 15 of Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich... And the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And what's it say? And who can stand? So who can stand before his indignation? Not Nineveh, not anyone. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Not Nineveh, not anyone. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So praise God for verse 7 of Nahum chapter 1. Verse 7 says this, The Lord is good. I need that. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. A day of trouble is coming. Nineveh's day was coming very soon when this was written. And one day, the day of trouble will come to the whole world. Not yet, maybe today, but not yet. Why? Because of his mercy. Uh, He is slow to anger and he's not willing that any should perish. But when that day comes, this same God who makes the mountains quake will be the same God, the same one who is the stronghold for those who take refuge in him. And so God is saying to his people take comfort, you're mine. And I know those who are mine. I know that Nineveh has been oppressing you. I know Assyria has been oppressing you. And no, they won't get away with it. No one gets away with it. So you worship me, your holy God, and you take comfort in my refuge and you trust my justice. It's so refreshing even to be reminded of this today. I mean, how many reasons are there today to look up and wonder, God, are you still there? Like today, will you still keep me? Will the governments, will the nations get away with what they're doing? Is our culture that's so twisted gonna win? Like, do I need to be concerned, God? And he's saying to us today, to his church, to you and me, he's saying, trust me, my justice is perfect. My patience and my slowness to anger is mercy. And rest in me, for I, the Lord, am your refuge. I'm your shelter. And the Lord knows see the intimacy. The Lord knows who take refuge in him. The Lord knows those who are his. How can this be? How can the Lord know those who are his? Please turn to John chapter uh, 10. Uh, John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. I have no idea how we're doing for time, by the way. I'm sorry. We're good. I got a thumbs up, so just keep going. All right. John chapter 10, verse 14. It says this, I am the good shepherd. Jesus speaking again. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Like, there's so much intimacy there. This is a relationship. I know my own, and and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep, I won't read this whole passage, but flip forward or just look forward to verse 27 of the same chapter. It says this, my sheep hear my voice, again, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, this is, okay, no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How could that be? I and the Father are one. So there's two things we really need to see here. The first one is Jesus just claimed to be God here. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord, just as God the Father is the Lord, the Lord Yahweh this is why in Nahum chapter 1, we can see the Lord being just and being jealous and also see the Lord being a stronghold and a refuge. So that's the first thing. The second thing to notice is like, what a sacrifice. Like, did you catch that? Like, the, the question has to be asked here, how on earth, Man, yeah, that's the wrong phrase, how in eternity, how, could, how is it possible that the Lord described in verses 2 to 6 could be the same Lord that is in verse 7? Like, how does he actually shelter us from his wrath and his vengeance without clearing the guilty? How is that possible? And John 10 just showed us. The good shepherd, Jesus, he is the Lord, and he lays down his life for his sheep. So that the just and the righteous wrath, the hot anger was poured onto Jesus Christ because the Lord chose us to be his treasured possession and he knew that we couldn't stand before his indignation. How amazing is that? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Like what incredible mercy. And and what a beautiful picture is actually being painted right now in this first chapter here, all because of verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Like when you've got visions of God's hot anger and mountains quaking, when you've got a vision of a righteous and just jealous and indignant God coming forward and the earth is absolutely being rocked, Psalm 23, listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like, think about this. This is, this is incredible. During the day of trouble, the earth will quake. Mountains and islands are going to be disappearing. Stars are gonna fall from heaven. And we... In the midst of all this, we'll be with the good shepherd. Like, what a picture to just imagine that in your mind's eye. I mean, who cares what you're facing next week? Like, think about that. When you can walk with a peace that passes understanding, and you know that that God that we've talked about is your shelter, like, take comfort. God is good. He is the good shepherd, and he's your shelter. So come what may. So the only question we have then is, how do we respond to this God? His glory demands our worship. Have you acknowledged him as worthy of your worship and obedience? Have you repented at all or lately for stealing his glory in your pride? His power crushes our pride. So do you look to God with complete dependence and gratitude and awe? And his mercy covers our sin. Do you know and do you love the good shepherd. We looked at Exodus 20 earlier and I skipped a verse. Well, I didn't skip it. We just stopped short of it. So I I want us to go back there. You can turn if you want. This is Exodus 20. We're not gonna read the whole thing. Gotta shave 30 seconds. Um, But halfway through verse five, it says this, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And then we have verse six. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If If you do love him today, I trust that you've been challenged the same way I've been challenged while preparing this, to just repent again. Like we need to be reminded of the greatness of our God. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to continually, by the Holy Spirit, put off the old self and walk by the Spirit According to his ways, and glorify him and give him the glory, do his name, because he is jealous. And if you are sitting here and you've never understood these truths like you do today, if all of a sudden it's clicking for you and you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your refuge, today could change everything. So I'll just encourage you after to talk to one of the elders or another leader today, or come talk to me. Just, just don't wait. Our God is slow to anger. And he is not willing that any should perish. But there is a day of trouble coming and we are not promised tomorrow. And we see this to to close. This is what immediately follows verse seven. Verse seven says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Verse eight, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Who can stand? No one but Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You are the Lord. You are Yahweh, a never ending, self deriving. You are faithful to your promises. You are God, and your name is jealous. And we just ask that you'd enable us to see this clearly so that we can praise and worship you because you own our praise. You own our worship. They are your possession. And we see see here uh, this book that you've given to us, Nahum, that your glory demands our worship. And we see that your power completely obliterates our pride. And we see that your mercy covers our sin and the only way we can even understand this is because of your Holy Spirit. So I ask that you'd give us eyes to to see more clearly who you are, and that you'd give us a heart that just longs to see your name praised and trusts your justice and your ways and your sovereignty. And I pray this in the name of our good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, Jesus Christ. Amen.